0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia.
1: Hello. So this week we are discussing Thor Ragnarok, the third movie in the Thor franchise. We are big fans of Thor here um, and this one was a perfect, perfect movie because it understood that Chris Hemsworth is funny and it's basically a comedy kind of carrying on both from the second Thor movie and also from the Last Avengers movie. It kind of sees Thor end up transported to this kind of gladiatorial arena, um, which is on this trash garbage planet where all these wormholes spit people out. And then Jeff Goldblum has made a civilization out of all the rubbish. And uh, his chief gladiator is the Hulk. So you have this kind of frenemy situation between the Hulk and Thor, which really works super well. Um, And the other storyline is that Hela, who is the previously unmentioned third child of Odin, um, returns to Asgard to take over. So you've got this kind of comedy storyline over at Jeff Goldblum's Fight Palace and then you've got Hela being like super gothic because it's Kate... Blanchett and she's amazing and she's trying to take over Asgard. And then you have your classic kind of supervillain hero battle at the end. Um, But kind of the important part of this movie is not really the plot so much as the the execution. It's directed by Taika Waititi, who is a New Zealand comedy director. Um, You may have seen films like What We Do in the Shadows or Hunt for the Wilder People. I love Hunt for the Wilder People. It's on Netflix. You should watch it. Um, But he has this very kind of distinctive comedic tone. And we both very much believe that he has more of a kind of writing uh, background in this film than the credits suggest. The script is credited to three random other guys, um, but Taika filmed this in Australia, very far away from the Hollywood environs of Marvel Studios. um, And also he encouraged the cast to kind of improvise a lot. Um, So you can just, we can just infer from that, the creative direction of this film.
0: <laughs> well I think in some interview he said that 80% of the dialogue was improvised which I do not believe that's too high no. a figure. However it seems like a lot of it was. I think it went through a very
1: extensive editing process where they were kind of like swapping in various jokes which happens with a lot of comedy movies because they filmed like so much material.
0: <laughs> yeah and I actually found which even in sort of mainstream comedies you don't usually see, but I found really charming in this. There are absolutely shots of Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston and maybe other actors, but those are the two I noticed, genuinely laughing at things as themselves that clearly were not scripted. And I found that really funny and entertaining. And it's not so much that it like breaks the fourth wall or anything like that. It doesn't seem out of character, but you can see them reacting in a way it's like oh yeah that clearly was an actual joke and like they think that's really funny and they're also
1: they are characters who would laugh at stuff anyway, exactly you yeah know? it's
0: fine it's not something that most people would probably notice like I knew a lot of this movie was improvised and it's you can tell that it was but I was kind of aware of that and was paying attention and I think about how films were made while I'm watching movies and so I was sort of paying attention to this kind of thing. And I could definitely tell. I was like, oh yeah, but it's Chris Hemsworth trying not to laugh. (laughs) Which is great. Like you can tell that they had a lot of fun making this. And from press around the movie too, that's manifestly apparent. Obviously anytime anyone is doing a press tour, they have to act like they like each other, but it seems like in this case, that's genuinely true. And compared to uh, most Marvel press tours, etc., where they all seem like they want to die. This was really yeah. pleasant.
1: Well, they don't have to talk about any heavy topics. Yes. They don't really need to keep any spoilers secret because there aren't any like major spoilers in this film. Yeah. And they just all really enjoy each other's company. And they can just like hang out and be funny. And that's kind of the perfect situation. And Taika Waititi is clearly this incredibly charismatic person. Like All of the quotes from actors who've worked with him are unbelievable. Apparently Kate Blanchett was like, oh, I want to work with him. And that's kind of part of the reason why she's even in this in the first place.
0: So, it went well. Yes. Well, he cast a number of Aussie and New Zealand uh, actors in this, including Kate Blanchett, who obviously is massively famous and, you know, works all over the world. But it seemed like that was part of what he was doing in this film. He's from New Zealand, if people don't know. And I thought that was kind of a neat touch, given that they were shooting down there and... um, it was part of what made it feel to me like it was his distinct movie.
1: Yeah, and like behind the scenes, there was this whole thing where he made sure to hire as many Aboriginal and Maori people as he could because he is Maori. It seemed like a much more ethical workplace than one really associates with superhero movies. He's very conscious of this kind of thing. Um, And he, he also kind of hired a couple of people who we've seen in his other films. I was really excited to see Rachel House, who uh, plays Jeff Goldblum's kind of hard-faced uh, sidekick who just wants to kill everyone. And I'm just like, I love her so much. She's just really funny. She plays this awful kind of grim social worker in Hunt for the Wilder people, and she's hysterical. And like, just, it was a perfect kind of partnership between her and Goldblum. Because obviously, Goldblum in this, he's playing this guy who doesn't really have any particularly impressive skills or powers. Basically, the two things he has in his favour is that he arrived on the trash planet Sakaar first, and he's kind of semi-immortal. So he basically set up this entire civilization not because he's this amazingly impressive guy, but just because he was there. And he's also just an idiot. And he's this self-absorbed tool who sets up this kind of gladiatorial civilization where everyone's just partying all the time and it's really shallow and frivolous so obviously Loki finds it very easy to con his way in while Thor ends up being a gladiator but there's also kind of like these subtle things where you know there's a point where Rachel House's character is like oh we need to round up the slaves and he's like oh I don't like that word we shouldn't call it that he's just like he's so simplistic he's like not even like a proper villain and that was kind of one of the things that's really great about this film is that almost every character is really dumb (laughs) We're just all dumb because <laughs> it's like the first two movies, right, you've got like the whole idea of the Thor franchise is that he's this sort of charming idiot jock who's like generally got a good heart, but he's just a bit of a doofus, which is kind of the, it's the kind of sanitized Disney version of what Thor is like, you know, there's less, less murdery. And then you have him contrasting with Loki, who's really cunning, and Natalie Portman's character, Jane Foster, who's a scientist, and her friends, who are also scientists. Whereas in this one, it kind of removes the logic of being like, oh, you have to balance that out. And it just goes to this kind of 21 Jump Street thing, where just everyone's stupid. (laughs) Like even Hella, who's like the cool, posh supervillain, she's not really smart either. She just shows up and like just starts killing people. Loki's obviously really cunning, but in this one, because it's more comedic, they removed all of the angsty elements from their relationship. So it's more just them kind of reminiscing about their idiotic childhood rivalry while also kind of Thor just now acknowledges that Loki's really unreliable so it's like it's no longer really serious and kind of going into like their dark past because there's no point in rehashing that and you just have dumb people having dumb jokes together like Tessa Thompson's character oh my god wonderful I mean everyone is in love with Tessa Thompson after this film as well they might in the trailer She does look really cool because she's riding on a winged horse and she's got a cool outfit and laser cannons and stuff. But you can't really tell what her character is from that. It just kind of looks like she's a cool action hero played by someone really charismatic. But in the actual film, she's like a full on just kind of (laughs) bro, which is amazing because you've like never seen that female character in anything. And she is absolutely 100% like this Viking warrior stereotype but she has enough of that you know sad backstory to give her some depth and it's just it's such a funny performance and the combination of her being just like a classic kind of punch first ask questions later kind of viking warrior then thor and then the hulk who is obviously the best kind of dumb marvel character great trifecta and then they have to go up against the intellectual powerhouse of uh, jeff Goblum, who just really wants to have a disco
0: everyone is an idiot And I think incidentally, that is why there's one scene with Benedict Cumberbatch because, of course, they have to fit in Doctor Strange somehow. And that scene is like not nearly as funny as the rest of the movie, partially because I think it's forced in, and also because he's like the genius smart one. It's like, I don't care about this,
1: (laughs) I have no interest. It was very tacked on, and also. So one thing, they put Sherlock music in the background, I did if you Actually,
0: not, I, I did not, but now that you say that, I, was sitting there I, like, Holy I completely shit. picked up on it in some like deep part of my brain.
1: Because the soundtrack for this is really good. They've got kind of like an 80s kind of power metal thing going on. But for his scene, they have Sherlock music. But also, not only is that scene really quite pointless, but also Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent, if anything, is worse than this than it was it's in Doctor Sublime. Strange.
0: Really incredible.
1: He's such a good actor in general, but his American accent fucking sucks.
0: So it's such appalling. bad casting for that admittedly terrible and pointless role in the first place. So they shouldn't have cast anyone in it. But if they were going to cast someone, it shouldn't have been him. But what I actually thought was really impressed. I mean, I thought everything about this film was impressive. I, I think it's the best Marvel movie. I was a- astonished by how good it was. And I was expecting it to be good. But I was like, wow, this is great. Was that while simultaneously being just fun and delightful throughout I thought they actually did manage to hit like genuine emotional beats
1: so for sure this stuff and it's partly because we have like so many yeah. films to build up on with Thor and Loki right. it works so well and
0: the only thing that I would have maybe added and this is just because like this is the stuff I really like from the previous films like I love Loki because I'm garbage um it's like maybe a <laughs> little, yeah. Me also. Maybe tell like a tiny bit more of the sibling stuff between them. It's like the only stuff I thought was remotely like acceptable about Thor, the dark world, which is the second Thor film, uh, is the sort of sibling dynamic between the two of them, which I believe Hiddleston basically wrote himself, as I recall from the previous press tour. Um, I mean, that film is just like an astonishing mess. I remember all the interviews from that being like, and there's good stuff with the the mom dying in that too. And Loki reacting, which Hiddleston also wrote, they had to reshoot a bunch of it. And it literally was just him being like, maybe there should be some emotions in this film. And Like they added all of it. It's so nuts because Loki
1: is so clearly a star. Like obviously Thor is the star of the film and Chris Hemsworth is amazing primarily when he's doing the comedic stuff, but come on. Loki. This is the role that made Tom Hiddleston, and having seen many Tom Hiddleston films uh, now, like including ones that I think are brilliant, this is still his best role. It is by I, far his you best. You haven't role. seen the
0: Deep Blue Sea. That's his. That, in my opinion, that's his best, and this is probably number two. But like, he's amazing in it. But anyway, I think the brother stuff is real. The where the pathos comes from in these movies, obviously, and I think they have really good stuff in this film about that. That's very subtle and well done. And you can kind of tell, I think, that Loki can't stop himself from being himself, but also he's kind of keeps testing Thor to acknowledge him in a way that he wants. Like he keeps acting like a shit and he wants Thor to believe him even though he's not giving him any reason to, but I think. The dynamic is that yeah. if Thor is nice to him, basically, then he will actually behave well. But Thor keeps not doing it, which is actually really sad because you can tell that he just wants to be given the opportunity to do the right thing. And Thor is like not getting this at all. And so the whole thing is like, oh. Thor has like
1: no emotional intelligence. I really, I also really loved the short sequence after the Hulk has kind of transformed back into Bruce Banner, where Thor has the same conversation basically with the Hulk and with Bruce Banner, where he's telling them both that they're right. the favourite one and he what likes them both. And it's just like it's like Thor is just a douchebag, but it's completely different from films like Guardians of the Galaxy and Iron Man, where the main character is like, oh, his whole thing is he's a charming douchebag. Because it's a very different, it's a very different kind of personality type. You know, it's like Thor is just usually not cunning at all and this is his one attempt at trying to be cunning and it's just hopelessly transparent and just really just just lovably stupid and the rest of the time he's just completely straightforward
0: <laughs> he definitely is has become a better actor in the intervening years for sure um and also the first Thor film was effectively his first movie right so like it's I mean fine. he'd done a
1: bunch of stuff but like it was his first leading yeah. role um and
0: he's good in it. Like, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah. I love that film. I've seen it like four yeah, times. Yeah. I think it's great, but he objectively has, has improved a lot, which you would expect. Um, but I think structurally, one of the things that really works about this movie is that he definitely is the main character. Like, it has a protagonist for sure while also having this great supporting cast who all, who also have their own beats. And, uh, the friend I went to the film with and I were talking about this because she is not a, you know, superhero Marvel person at all, but sees most of these films, and really had not liked um, Civil War. I think maybe she didn't even finish it. I think maybe she watched it at home and had said she couldn't even get through it. And the problem with that film was she had kind of articulated is just that there are so... Despite Captain America movie, there basically isn't a protagonist. If there's a protagonist, it's Tony, but even that is kind of stretching it. Like, there's just so much going on that you can't really keep track of anything. And I think Infinity War will kind of be the same. And obviously, it's possible to make a movie that's just a pure ensemble. Like, Robert Altman is one of my favorite directors, and he's the king of that. But particularly with a blockbuster like this, like, it's just really hard to do. Especially when it's meant to conclude a trilogy, right? Exactly. And with this, like, it is... Thor's film, but it doesn't feel overwhelmingly that way. And the climax of the movie isn't just about him being a solitary hero. It's about the whole team coming together and sort of working together to solve the problem. And I thought that the whole thing was really well balanced in that way and made it very pleasurable to watch. And the fact that he's become a better actor and was so funny made it work on that level. Yeah, I mean, I just thought, As a movie, it was so brilliantly executed. I mean, I was I was
1: really impressed by the fact that it simultaneously it feels very separate from the other Marvel films because you know stylistically it it looks different, obviously, because they're combining the kind of gold Asgard stuff with really really colorful Jack Kirby inspired space things in the uh, Sakaar Jeff Goldblum sequence and some really out there costumes like Jeff Goldblum's costume is so delightful because it just looks like from something from a 1970s comic it honestly does look like it's made out of sort of costume fabric intentionally and he's wearing all this kind of blue nail polish and stuff fantastic and obviously Taika Waititi's sense of humor is very distinctive like he has a character in it where he plays this former revolutionary gladiator named Korg, um, she's amazing just, just incredible like when, when when that i saw beforehand that he had a cameo you know and i assumed that he was going to be in it for like one scene he's actually a much more major character than Doctor yeah. strange who really is a cameo because he does appear throughout the story and has like a really distinct personality he's so charming he has this he uses his uh his normal accent and he speaks in this really kind of soft like cheerful upbeat tone in this really like fucked up weird situation and stuff like making you know he has these lines where he just like straightforwardly is like I tried to start a revolution but I didn't print enough pamphlets and it's just like you're so you're so charming and he's clearly going to come back in later films but kind of as I was saying initially they do manage to combine this really distinctive stuff with it being an extremely effective conclusion to the Thor trilogy particularly with Thor and Loki's relationship and their individual character arcs and kind of the obvious part of that is the fact that Odin dies which is the the obvious kind of conclusion for these kind of father mentor figures and um his death was like it was very whatever for me I wasn't particularly interested in that part but I was really happy that Anthony Hopkins got to do a sequence where he was playing Loki playing Odin because he got to do like he got to do comedy, I was just like, I love Anthony Hopkins. He's playing this kind of like sleazy Tom Hiddleston disguised himself. It was it was great, right up there with when Helena Bonham Carter has to pretend to be Emma Watson, pretending to be her in Harry Potter. Great, love that shit. Um, but in terms of their individual character arcs, it really does build on that in a way that unfortunately Captain America three didn't manage because they had this Tony Stark thing was like fucking plopped on top of what should have been the conclusion. Because you know in the in the first film. Loki and Thor both feel really young you know Thor is this kind of golden boy prince character who's really immature he doesn't really understand the weight and morality of being a king and Loki is obviously really selfish but he's also extremely angsty because he has all these identity issues about being an adopted frost giant and not being as respected as his brother and all this shit it's really really kind of heartfelt and I think that's that's obviously why that film and Captain America are the two that really, really intensively inspired a ton of fan fiction and like that kind of fandom because you really want to explore that kind of character arc and the emotional stuff going on. Then in Thor The Dark World, obviously that had some issues. I actually prefer this film a lot more than uh, I like it more than Morgan does, which regular listeners will not be surprised to hear. (laughs) Uh, It's like I'm slightly more forgiving. But um, in that film, they have like a lot more Shakespearean seriousness because Thor's grown up, and he's kind of feeling the weight of, of becoming a hero in his own right. And at this point, Loki is much more kind of upset because he has done this really horrible stuff by this point. He is the villain in Avengers and he has to see his mother die. And his mother is basically the last person who has sympathy for him and he's all alone. And then by this film, because you've had three films time to kind of have that relationship work through you're at the point now where you don't really need to rehash any of the darker stuff and the conflict and they've settled into this point which is like the funnier of the Norse myths because there's obviously a lot of Norse myths which are really epic and serious you know it takes the title from Ragnarok and you have a lot of intense Conflict between Odin's family. But there was also a lot where it's literally just about how Thor and Loki are funny for different reasons. Because, you know, a lot of them are just dumb comedy stories, like the one where Thor infiltrates a wedding by disguising himself as the bride, right? Um, <laughs> which is like, a, that's a real classic. But in this one, they've just reached this perfect point where you can imagine them just having an infinite amount of time of adventures together because they both now understand that the other one's not going to change. Thor understands that Loki is just constantly going to betray him, but he still loves him. And Loki understands that Thor is just never going to change his like wholesome heroic stuff and there is no point in trying to get him to like understand more. But they're both, it feels like the setup for a sitcom or like an ongoing episodic TV show where you've got the relationship solid now and you can just continue. And I mean, that is kind of conclusive for this kind of trilogy, right? Because they are going to appear in later films, but there's no guarantee there's going to be another Thor film itself. And I hope
0: there isn't, because why? After this, what is the point?
1: And And the thing is that Taika Waititi said that he'd actually totally do another one, which surprised me. Oh, in that case,
0: that's fine. Yeah,
1: (laughs) which surprised me. Obviously, if it was someone else, I'd be like, don't bother. And I feel like probably the actors would too, because Hiddleston and Hemsworth don't need to do more. And I think Hemsworth is a lot more enthusiastic about this in general, because basically every other film he's done, apart from Ghostbusters, has not been successful financially or creatively, because he keeps getting cast in these action roles. You know, he's in Snow White and the Huntsman, right? But- they've kind of taken the action stuff from Thor and not figured out the good stuff is the charm and the wit.
0: Well, I was just at, I don't remember what movie I was at, doesn't matter. They, oh, it was The Killing of a Sacred Deer, right? Which we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, but this is this like extreme art film, very uh, weird and intense. I'm saying this at, like a New York movie theater, right? And they're playing the previews ahead of it and they show a preview Chris Hemsworth's upcoming film which he produced that is about American soldiers right after 9-11 I guess there was some like elite unit that was sent into Afghanistan to do something I don't fucking know and they literally wound up like riding horses every around I don't know but the subtitle is something like the horse the true story of the horse soldiers whatever and my like (laughs) <laughs> Snooty New York crowd out to see the New York Lanthimos movie burst out laughing at the end <laughs> of the trailer. Like we could not. Michael Shannon is in this film. I was like, "What is this? How is well?" This Michael
1: Shannon is in like a Christmas movie this year.
0: Yes, I mean, who knows? His maybe his he needs some money for the college fund. At some point, children. we should just like, do, do an episode
1: like about Michael
0: Shannon. I fully agree, but. I mean people could not believe what they were saying and I actually said out loud to my friend like well great reaction in the theater to that one and then the people behind us laughed more and it was just like it was it was not good and like, I don't, like not why does he
1: choose these films he did a NASCAR movie he did a NASCAR film and a film where he's a hacker Chris Hemsworth is not a NASCAR person or a hacker that's not who you cast He's perfect in Ghostbusters.
0: <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? And I haven't even seen Ghostbusters. Like, I really need to. It's just that like, when it came out, it was not a good time for me and then I just haven't gotten around to it. But just from the previews and then from the Thor stuff, I have been saying for a long time, and this movie validates me, he just needs to do dumb comedy. If that is his niche. Run with it. Don't look back. Stop with the stupid dramas. Like, c- come on, man please like and it's not just that like i've seen people kind of say this about him and some of the other superhero guys like chris evans gets this sometimes too and he, the only other film he's made that was really good was snowpiercer um which was not a box office hit because harvey weinstein fucked it but that's a different conversation that audiences are only really proven that they want to see them in these roles which but it's is, more that they're getting miscast. Exactly. And, I mean, obviously who knows what's going to happen with their careers once this stuff is over. We cannot see into the future. But they need to be cast in the right things. And I think Chris Hemsworth is a really talented actor, but he's talented in a certain type type of thing. And, like, he's hosted SNL and been on Well, it. yeah, he should and be like, doing Channing Tatum movies, you know? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the right parallel. And Channing Tatum actually could do drama really well, too. Yeah. But um, that kind of, like, dumb, funny stuff. Perfect. So take a lesson from this, Chris. He should be in, like, one of and tates little movies. That would be great. Right? Like a dual I feel like
1: movie. that's relatively plausible at this point. Yeah. I think that might back.
0: actually happen. Come on, universe. Do it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens from here on out. But unfortunately, first, we have to endure the Horse Soldiers movie. Just like, oh my god. I mean, not us personally, because we will not no. be seeing that film. No. But, like, the universe at large will have to weather that one. Um... We should also talk about Kate Blanchett a little bit.
1: For our final section of the podcast, we can talk about Kate Blanchett's Hella and also the uh, kind of colonialist themes yes. of this film, which I fucking yes. loved. I've written an article about it. It will probably be published by the time this podcast comes out. So hopefully we yeah. can link to it in the show notes.
0: Yeah. Yes. The other thing that really works about this movie, apart from them, I think managing to make the kind of emotional beats with the characters work, even though it's not a particularly serious film, is that, it is quite a light and funny film that also happens to be about quite serious things in a indirect way that I thought was really impressive. And wasn't Which, once expecting. again,
1: is something that Taika Waititi is really good at, because yes. Hunt for the Welder People is a really charming individual comedy film, and it's about a kid who's adopted by an older couple and then ends up having to go on the run in the forest, yep, which is some because- pretty like dark material.
0: Yeah, because he doesn't want to go back into foster care. At the yeah, call. Yeah, I mean, there's some ser- some serious shit in that movie, which I also think is fantastic. Highly recommend it. Um, and I hadn't seen anything about what this movie is really about anywhere. Uh, I don't know how no. much it's been written about in reviews. I don't read reviews before I see movies generally, but this was not something that was on my radar. And like, the trailers, obviously, for the film were just like dumb jokes. So I was so fascinated by the extent to which this was a film about colonialism. And this is one of the things that makes me so curious about how much Taika Waititi basically just rewrote the script himself. Like, I would love to know what that original script looked like. I saw some interview with one of the screenwriters today where he was talking about how one of the first things they decided was they wanted to... Should we just spoil the end now? Spoilers? Yeah. 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 They wanted to destroy Asgard at the end. Like, that was where they started because Ragnarok is about, like, the myth is about that, which makes sense. And that's a pretty major plot point for, like, that makes sense that they would have, the studio would have come up with that at the beginning, right? But the context for that could, like, that could be done in a number of different ways, right? And it strikes me that Taika ACT. probably
1: is the person who yeah i mean rather than it being kind of him coming in later and rewriting i think this is as far as i know it's kind of a similar situation to the way patty jenkins kind of conceived wonder Woman because there were several directors who were shortlisted to make this film for marvel Mm -hmm. and they all got the basic ideas of what marvel wanted out of this film various pitches and then they kind of shared their own pitches for what those ideas should be so I imagine you know there were like a few different threads that Taika Waititi came forward with and were like we should do these and then various writers came in I mean there was like a fourth writer on this film who didn't get credited and there was a whole Writers Guild of America issue because Stephanie Folsom was like tweeting about this a few months ago she that's the screenwriter who apparently Marvel gave her a credit but then the Writers Guild wouldn't allow her to keep it because you're only allowed to have a certain number of people with story by credit. So it was all this like technical stuff, but it's just like, just fuck's sake. Especially seeing as like the whole writing credit thing gets a bit mushy when you're doing a comedy and a lot of people are improvising.
0: Yeah. But what basically Hella sort of appears, this is Cape Blanchett, and no one has ever heard of her, probably because uh, in the previous films they didn't think they were going to use this character. But this is a convenient way for her to stand in as the symbol of this uh, literally plastered over history Yeah, um, that she and Odin sort of conquered all this other territory basically like Asgard rules the nine worlds in a very violent and horrible manner and she talks a lot about how all the like gold in Asgard comes from these other places and then once Odin kind of changed his mind about how he wanted to do things. or so she got out of control. He banished her and then had his other children and changed the whole narrative of history. And I thought the most striking image in the film by far was she's in the palace at Asgard and is looking up at the ceiling, which is this very beautiful kind of classical art type ceiling like you would see in Italy or France or something. And it has all these images of, you know Thor and Loki and Odin and all this stuff and historical scenes from what is purported to be the history of Asgard and she breaks it. And underneath that is like the real history of how all of this happened. And then ultimately the conclusion of the movie is that she of course gets defeated, but they have to destroy Asgard in the process and the people essentially become refugees And I thought that all of this was just astonishingly deep for a superhero blockbuster. Like, and not, like, there are other superhero movies, obviously, that have engaged in complex themes, but they tend to be around the same kind of, like, hero-type And also,
1: colonialism is not something that comes up in pop culture.
0: Right. Like, this is completely a different thing, but it makes sense. Given the context of these stories, which is... Yeah,
1: and it doesn't come out of nowhere. It really builds on the canon we've already had. Because in the first film, the initial conflict on Asgard is to do with Loki's heritage as a frost giant. They're this race that's part of the nine worlds. They're kind of drawn from Norse mythology. And although they're not ruled by Asgard, they were defeated by Asgard. So they're kind of like Asgard's vassal. And Odin took their power source and the frost giants want it back. So you already know that Odin isn't kind of this wise, wonderful leader you think of. It's like they've, you know, there's this whole kind of propaganda thing where Thor automatically assumes that the Frost Giants are evil and Loki has all this self-loathing because he didn't know he was a Frost Giant and now he knows that he's not Asgardian and he then tries to commit genocide on the people that genetically are his. You know, they really do introduce that in the first film and in this one they really build on that because you have this kind of concept of like actually Asgard is corrupt. But at the same time... They don't kind of go for the route of, oh, that means that Asgardians are bad, you know, which is kind of the key like balance that's going on there because Thor and the Asgardians who are currently kind of civilians there, they weren't the people who were doing the conquering, that was Odin and Hela but at the same time they have benefited from that so the fact that they destroy Asgard means that they are kind of starting anew and they're no longer in this position of kind of abusive power where they're taking kind of the wealth and so on from the nine realms Um, and actually we haven't kind of touched on Idris Elba's subplot here maybe because we were mostly talking about the comedy but um, Idris Elba has a bigger role in this film than he did in the previous films undoubtedly because Idris Elba went to Marvel and was like what the fuck I need a bigger role I'm Idris Elba but he basically (laughs) has like the serious storyline he is the one who's left on Asgard, they very quickly kill off the Warriors three. They all have about one second of screen time. Uh, But while Hela is taking over Asgard, Idris Elba's character Heimdall, who is kind of the wise warrior and kind of the guy who's the guard of Asgard, he gets all of the civilians to safety and he's the one who kind of manages to partner up with Thor. So... the the premise of the article I was talking about that I was writing for this is that Idris Elba should become the new head of state of Asgard and which I was actually almost surprised this didn't happen at the end of the film because it ends with the refugees of Asgard traveling in a spaceship off into space to be in you know Avengers 3 um, and Thor is at the helm and obviously it's a bit overcomplicated to have a change of leadership in that scene like it narratively makes sense for Thor to be king now but kind of the premise of the the entire trilogy is that monarchy has really fucked up Asgard and that's caused all of the problems because Thor, although he's worthy of heroism, he's not the kind of person who wants to do day to ro- day ruling and Loki is just completely a terrible leader. And really you should right. be having someone who's qualified and capable, which is in this context Heimdall, because he's the person who's been doing the work on Asgard. He's really sensible, he's steady, he's thoughtful, He will. he's not like a royal, so he's not going to be kind of throwing his weight around, he will listen to people's opinions. He should be the president, Thor should be the kind of ceremonial head of state slash dragon killer, that is the arrangement I, I have got say, for this.
0: They can have a constitutional monarchy. <laughs> Great. So I
1: I was really thinking about this a lot after seeing the film. I was like, yep, yeah, I figured it out. I mean, obviously, I personally not a fan of monarchy, but I love fiction about fantasy monarchs. I'm right. like the perfect audience for this narrative.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I think our friend Laurel on Twitter pointed out that what works so well about the third act of this movie where most third acts of Marvel movies really fall apart is that what it's all leading to actually validates the themes of the film. And it's actually,
1: and it doesn't spend fucking hours like with people hammering away each other. It's like an extensive action scene, but it's all character based.
0: Right. And it is not validating exactly, but sort of fulfilling the themes Mm. of the movie. And I didn't exactly articulate that in my head as I was watching but I found it really really satisfying and as soon as she articulated it I was like oh yes exactly that is precisely why this was so much better than all of the other movies and I think some of the other Marvel movies are really good obviously um probably the next best one is um, Winter Soldier but the whole subplot of Winter Soldier where, like, Robert Redford is trying to kill millions of people and then they have to have this huge battle thing and, like, it kind of goes against the whole point of the movie and what the movie's trying to say because the filmmakers know that they have to have a big battle scene at the end with tons of explosions. And the most egregious example of this recently that some people have talked about this also but like the most recent Spider-Man, which I really enjoyed and thought was a good film. But the whole point of the movie is that Peter spends all his time doing too much by himself and thinking that he can do everything independently, but actually he's like a dumb teenager and shouldn't do that. And then the climax of the movie is him doing exactly that. It's like, this doesn't make
1: any sense. Like, please, stop. I just Final battle scenes in superhero movies are just such a plague, you know? The only, right. I think the only one that I've rewatched and been like oh this is really just great to watch is the final battle of Avengers which is just really well constructed because they have little roles for each character and also thematically like that film basically doesn't have any themes so they don't need to like tie it I still I really really like Avengers but with the others like either I will just want to skip the final battle or I'll only be interested you know in, in Captain America Civil War which I adore the actual kind of combat stuff isn't super interesting but like the personal interactions are what makes it Really rewatchable, you know? And in this one, because you just don't have like ages of Hela and Thor punching each other, it's better.
0: Well, yeah, the difference between this and something like Winter Soldier, which again, I'd be, I wrote so much fan fiction for that movie, like, obviously I love that film. The two main differences are that that subscribes to, and this is surely due to Marvel forcing them to do this, it has the kind of like every X number of minutes there has to be a big action sequence. Which this movie doesn't do. There's definitely action, but it's not action in a sort of traditional blockbuster sense. And there's not as much of it as usual. And it benefits from that hugely because it's more structured as a comedy. Or like an action comedy maybe. And the other thing is that Taika Waititi is just a lot better as a director than almost everyone, or probably everybody, who has directed all of these other Marvel films. So the Russo brothers, who... Directed Winter Soldier and are doing um, Infinity War. Obviously, have certain skills. They I think they work with actors really well. They clearly understood the material, but visually speaking, I don't think are particularly skilled. And that certainly for action, that movie is like yeah. And they came
1: straight from TV. You know, they were they were directing like T before that, and it's just like no. Whereas Taika Waititi is extremely aesthetic. We all know that he's like massively into fashion. So
0: you know. And so it was. it's following the fight scenes in this movie or any scene where a lot of sort of dynamic visual stuff was happening. You completely could tell what was going on. He didn't do the thing where there are just like a million cuts to show that lots of stuff is happening and then you can't actually tell what's happening because the camera is just like moving a ton. It was really fluid and that makes for such a more pleasurable and coherent experience. And I think and as you were talking about with the the Goldblum stuff, like it's just way more visually distinctive in a really pleasing way. I think in a much more sort of pleasing and interesting way than the Guardians of the Galaxy films, which are the other kind of visually yeah they've got really great design, ones. but they're
1: not they're not like interestingly directed. And also, I, I just find that yeah. I find the humor like really distasteful. And I don't, I mean, they're just incredibly simplistic friendship concept that just doesn't hold together because it's like why are they friends? But I will not go into ragging on that. I just ugh.
0: Blech. I only saw the first one and I didn't see the second one because I hated the first one so much. So that's my opinion I just, I, of just no for me. But like I think also with this one,
1: there's basically no superhero films really dig into the visuals of the comics, you know, which is weird. But um, this one is like not only do you have all these visual references to Jack Kirby, which is like it, it's kind of a deep cut because obviously most people who are watching the film will not be familiar with Jack Kirby. But like if even if you're not. You can tell that there's some really kind of you know, weird artwork going on in the Jeff Goldblum scenes, you know, and there's a lot of kind of really peculiar character design and that really, it really benefits from that because it feels more comic booky, but also during the action sequences, there are a lot of these shots where you're just like, that's really cool. You know, there's just like the scenes where it's like a scene that you can imagine having airbrushed onto the side of someone's van, someone like flinging a laser beam at something or like a giant slow motion, someone on a winged horse kind of situation. And actually, that is like what Zack Snyder does, right? Like Zack Snyder, that's his thing. And if you like his aesthetic, then that's kind of effective, right? Like, I think I find his films really unpleasant to look at, but he actually understands that concept, even if it's not working for me personally. Yeah. But basically, there was like very few other superhero directors who are even bothering to try and capture the emotional impact of comic book visuals from like a superhero comic in that way.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And that I don't read comics. So watching this, the sort of details of that weren't something that I was processing. But Even so, I think you can tell that he's drawing on stuff that the other people aren't bothering to at all. And it adds to the movie so much. And it's weird that given that all those decades of visual references exist, that you wouldn't go to that well, right? It's very strange, but it led to this great film, so that's fine. It will be interesting to see how... Black Panther works on that. I mean, level. it already
1: looks incredible, like visually. I'm, I'm so optimistic yeah. for Black Panther.
0: Oh, me too. Um, it strikes me that that will probably be more in this vein, visually speaking, in terms of
1: originality. Like
0: looking back at that other stuff, well, I mean, obviously it'll, it's going to be. You can just tell from the trailer; it's going to be way more original than all these other Marvel films. But in terms of actually engaging with the sort of comics history it seems like they're doing that too which i think is not necessarily like a requirement but neat and like a good idea because why not that so yeah it seems like they're gonna have two in a row that are actually great which given their track record recently is you know good job um and and they can pat themselves on the back, because next up for DC is Justice League. Yeah, we are that almost trailer, certainly going to
1: be reviewing that uh, when that comes out. I, the, tra-
0: the trailer, just to sort of cap this off on a high note, the trailer for that played obviously before this, I'm sure all of you also saw that. And again, I was sitting there with my, my friend who does not follow this stuff, and she just was like, what? is that like she just could not believe what she had witnessed and I said yeah I was just like I was so I
1: was just so amused like the other day I was in the tube with a friend um there's like a particular Justice League poster that's basically everywhere and it's based on this really iconic Justice League comic and it shows the team with their faces kind of lit like the Bohemian Rhapsody Queen album cover so they look Like my friend described this as looking like waxworks, they look really weird, it's not the way that any poster ever looks, and it basically visually looks terrible, right? Which isn't something I'd ever considered, because I only know about it in the context of it being a reference. But it's completely pointless, right? Because it looks shit. I mean, I saw someone making fun of it on Twitter, like, oh, this looks like they're all trapped in a lift together, you know? And that is what it looks like. And they're so disconnected from their audience. They're like, oh yeah, we should definitely have this pretty niche reference to a famous Justice League book cover instead of a poster that actually looks good and advertises the film to most audiences. Just baffling.
0: It's bizarre. They have no idea what they're doing. I'm going to be really curious to see how much money that movie makes. Because it's obviously going to make money, of course. It's a big superhero film. But... It seems like it's heading to a bad place. Who knows? And this movie, I think, is going to rake it in. Oh, yeah, this movie is already fucking raking it in. Yeah. And people, like, I'm going to go see it a second time. People are going to go back. So, yeah, it will be interesting. We'll see. Uh, Next week, we will be discussing the new Philip Pullman novel, La Belle Sauvage, the first volume in The Book of Dust. Which uh, is the new sort of companion series to Historic Materials. We have both finished this book and love it so much. Many emotions were felt at the reading of this novel. It's so. You can good.
1: send in your questions to us on our Tumblr account. Um, you don't have to have a Tumblr account yourself. You can just send in an anonymous message and sign it. We also have Twitter.
0: Yeah get him in yeah we're really excited to be talking about this we love this dark materials childhood classic and the new book is really really great if you haven't read it you certainly have time between now and next week and otherwise you can still listen in and thank you as always for listening to this week's episode if you enjoyed it we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on itunes it's how we find new listeners And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.